Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Center for Baptist Renewal podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm Matt Emerson, and I'm one of the board of directors at CBR. And today I'm joined by Luke Stamps, who's also one of our CBR board of directors. The Center for Baptist Renewal is a group of Orthodox Evangelical Baptists committed to retrieving the great tradition for the renewal of Baptist faith and practice. And if you enjoy what you hear today, we invite you to check out our website at centerforbaptistrenewal.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter at, at Baptist Renewal and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Baptist Renewal. And of course, we ask that if you like it, subscribe to it, tell your friends about it. Uh, in today's show, we're going to discuss Article 4 of the Manifesto for Evangelical Baptist Catholicity. If this is your first time listening and you haven't heard us talk about uh, the Manifesto, this is just a brief document where we list out 11 commitments that we have as uh, evangelical Baptists pursuing Catholicity within Christ's one church. And our, in our previous episodes, we've walked through articles one through three on the priority of God and his word, on the centrality of the gospel, and then on um, being Protestants. And then today we're going to talk about article four on Baptist distinctives. And it's here that things start to get a little uh, wild and woolly in terms of talking about Baptist Catholicity, because uh, many people think that to be Baptist is in some way to depart from uh, the unity of the church, especially in our view on baptism. So I'm going to read uh, the, the article, Article 4, and then we'll jump into the conversation. So Article 4, Baptist Distinctives. We affirm the distinctive contributions of the Baptist tradition as a renewal movement within the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. These distinctives include the necessity of personal conversion, a regenerate church, believers' baptism, congregational governance, and religious liberty. And so if you go to our website, we discuss Article 4 at length. Uh, we, we have a post, a blog post on each of the articles, uh, but that's, the, that's just the statement version of Article 4. So last week we talked about <clears throat> a little bit about uh, how Baptists should be considered reformational. That is, we're part of the Protestant Reformation. We're not, uh, Baptists are not Anabaptists. So we talked about that at length last week, uh, but here in, or in the last episode on Article 3, but here in this episode uh, and in this article, we talk about Baptists as a renewal movement. So what do we mean, Luke, by the term renewal movement? Well, we're borrowing that, like a lot of our language on the website, from Timothy George, um, who has referred to um, the Baptist movement as a renewal within a renewal. Um, there's a sense in which evangelicalism, uh, sort of conservative Protestantism, is already a renewal movement within the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And uh, the Baptist movement is is a renewal within that right so we're, we're positioning ourselves as protestants and then little c catholics uh but it is a part of our dna to see um to, to resist identifying the kingdom of christ with any one church or tradition um to see uh you know the church on earth as a pilgrim community uh on the way to a greater uh representation of the kingdom um, sometimes I think even uh, sometimes Baptists are accused of having an over-realized eschatology in that we, you know, are sort of um, 
taking too much of the end times and trying to bring it into the present moment and to have this sort of pure view of the church as believers made up of believers only. Uh, but there's a sense in which Baptists want to say to the other, some of the other traditions within the, the church of Christ, um, actually, no, you are the ones who have kind of over-realized eschatology, and especially we might identify the Roman Catholic church uh, in that way of sort of identifying the church of Jesus Christ as the institutional Roman Catholic church. Uh, whereas we want to say something more modest than that and say, no, we, we're actually always reforming according to the scripture so that none of our churches represent perfectly what the church will be um, when Christ renews his people at his coming. Um, and so renewal is a part of what it means to be a Baptist. Uh, maybe that's part of what it means to be a Protestant prior to that, uh, this notion of, of reforming ourselves according to, to Holy Scripture. And Baptists are just another expression of that. In that, in that way, we we see our our project is not creating something new, but renewing from within the one true church. Yeah, and so we talk about renewal movement, uh, a renewal movement within the one, and then we list the the four. And my Latin pronunciation is horrible, but the four note ecclesia uh, within the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So. Um, maybe just a, a, a brief comment on what we mean by those terms. Uh, we, we've written on uh, Baptist Catholicity, that third term. And of course, that's what the Center for Baptist Renewal is about. But Luke, maybe if you could walk us through those four terms quickly, just, just so everybody's on the same page about what we mean by those. Yeah, so the creed gives us then four um, marks of, of a true church. Um, the four marks of, of the church, rather. Um, yeah, one, so just real quick, uh, I'm glad you said that. Uh, I meant to mention it. Luke just said this in the creed. This is taken from the Nicene Creed. So this is the, the these four terms are from the Nicene Creed and how they describe right. the church. Yeah, so the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. So those are the kind of the four marks of the church that, that Jesus Christ has has founded and has promised to to be with to the very end of the age. Um, so unity, holiness, those, those are probably more straightforward. Um, the church is to be one. Uh, the church is to be holy and set apart. I mean, even there, we start to feel a little discomfort, right? Knowing that, well, my church is not really expressing this exactly the way that we would want. The church doesn't appear to be unified. There's lots of divisions. The church doesn't appear to be holy. There's lots of scandals lots of sins. Um, and we need to reckon with our failures to uphold these marks. Uh, but in the most fundamental sense, these marks are true of us only um, truly in Christ. Right? The church is one because it's united to one head. So the church is one body, uh, regardless of our apparent divisions. Uh, all true believers across the world and down through the centuries are in, in truth, one body because we are one in Christ. Right. And similarly, we're holy, not because we've always expressed that uh, perfectly or even exemplary in an exemplary way, but, but that we are holy in Christ, who is our, our sanctification. Um, those two, are, I think, are fairly straightforward. The church is to be characterized by unity, holiness. Um, the other two, of course, need some, some explanation, and this is where it start, you know, things start to, to be uh, debated. Uh, so one holy Catholic, what does it mean to be Catholic? Um, the word, the word Catholic literally means according to the whole. So it has to do with, 
the church as it is worked through space and time. So it's it sort of the, the church's Catholicity is sort of a unity extended in space and time, right? Um, and so uh, it's related to unity, but it's it's especially picking up on the idea that the church is is extended in, in its unity across space and time. Um, and that's what we're trying. We've obviously titled our projects here, um, uh, uh, these gestures towards Baptist Catholicity in order to say, we want to show our visible unity uh, with the church across space and time. And then apostolicity, uh, which is a nice 10 cent word for you, um, is understood in various ways. You know, uh, certainly there are some traditions that are um, Episcopal in government, uh, the Episcopal Church, obviously the Anglican Communion, but also um, the, the Catholic and Orthodox communions that, that see the church's unity as secured by, um, you know, the church's unity and holiness and Catholicity secured by a succession of bishops mm-hmm. um, who can trace their lineage all the way back to the apostles. So this notion of apostolic succession uh, through the the office of the bishops, right. as Baptists we don't have bishops, so we anchor our understanding. At least not that we admit. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, uh, we won't go into multi-site churches with uh, senior pastors <laughs> over multiple congregations, um, or or uh, mega personalities. <laughs> that's right. Just yeah. informally. Um, but yeah, so we 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 along with other Protestants who are not Episcopal in their understanding of church government would say the 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 deepest root of ap- apostolicity is, well, the writings of the apostles, right? The inspired text of the New Testament, mm-hmm. uh, that, that to be truly apostolic is to be committed to the scriptures. Um, and, and also, by extension, to be committed to um, consensus interpretation of the scriptures, mm-hmm. uh, which is, is, is the tradition and the right sense of the word that's been handed down to us from the apostles, not necessarily through an institution or an office, but through the, the lay consensus of the church across across the centuries. So that's what we're, we, we hope we're trying to be a part of that. We're not saying something different than that. Uh, we don't want to position ourselves as sectarian, um, trying to depart and do our own thing. And that hasn't always right. been the case in Baptist life, right? Sometimes Baptists have come across as sectarian. Yeah. Uh, another one of our uh, friends who's in a, a slightly different um, sector of the, the Baptist movement theologically, but Steve Harmon, uh, who's who's in, inspired some of our work. I mean, we just have to 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 be honest about that. That his his work, while we differ with him on some important issues, his work has inspired a lot of our own work. Uh, he's sort of a fellow traveler from a different uh, sector of the Baptist movement, who's also trying to retrieve the the little C Catholic um, tradition. But in one of his books, he has described Baptists as the problem children of ecumenism. <laughs> <laughs> right so we're, we're the ones who uh we won't we won't accept your baptisms you know um we don't really want anything to do with you we kind of have our own little <laughs> empire over here um and so we sort of at least in practice have 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 eschewed those kinds of conversations dialogues we sometimes right. see ecumenical dialogue as necessarily involving compromise we've got our own thing going thank you very much and that's been true sometimes uh, but it need not be true. Uh, it hasn't always been true across the Baptist movement. Um, you know, in, in, in the 20th century, British Baptists, for example, were very involved 
uh, even in the leadership of ecumenical conversations. So we're trying to say something that's, that's a bit more open. And this mm. is one of our later articles. We'll come back to this idea of uh, tradition and ecumenism. But whatever we're saying about Baptist distinctives here, uh, we don't want it to, it's a careful balancing act, right? Where we're, we don't want to say bad, being Baptist means nothing because we're trying to be one with everybody else. But at the same time, we want to say being Baptist is significant. It actually brings certain gifts to bear uh, to help renew the one church that we're all a part of. Yeah, that, that, that's good. Uh, and what we say to those things is important. I, I think it's important to just sort of name the elephant in the room. And you have to some extent, but I just want to keep calling it out, um, which is that when people hear the term or the phrase uh, Baptist Catholicity, they think it's an oxymoron. Right? And so if we were to walk through um, those four notes of the church, those four marks of the church, um, it, it's hardly evident to some, to many maybe, that Baptists believe in the oneness of Christ church. Well, in fact, we have many local churches. And in fact, in Baptist life and Baptist thought, there has been a strong strain, especially in American Baptist life of landmarkism, which denies uh, the universal church uh, in a sense, not, not in a kind of theological sense, but in, re in, in a real way in space and time, it's just local churches. And yes, all of those are real churches, but um, in terms of identifying them as part of something larger than their own local church, landmarkists deny that. Um, and landmarkism has had a profound impact on American Baptist life, both in terms of our own, uh, your, yours and my Southern Baptist context, but also in terms of um, independent Baptists and, and other Baptist groups in America. And then when you think about, uh, I mean, the holiness of the church, I think you could make an argument that really every communion has failed uh, visibly, miserably at the holiness of the church. Um, so there's not as much sort of strain there other than to say we can point out our own failures just as much as anybody else can in that regard. But when you get to Catholicity, uh, you know, there's this emphasis not only on the unity of the church, but the visible unity. And in terms of visible unity, Baptists as you mentioned very early on, don't recognize the baptism of other traditions that uh, baptize people as infants. At least some don't, right? I mean, there are some. Right. Who would uh, say yes, there are some. I mean, yeah. John Bunyan famously, um, but many, many, and I would say most Baptists don't. Uh, many Baptists, especially historically, and then in our context in the Southern Baptist Convention, many Baptists uh, don't allow for open communion where people from other churches and, and especially other denominations uh, come to church with you at a Baptist church. They can't participate in the table because they haven't um, been baptized as a believer. And so in terms of the two visible marks of being part of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, Baptists, many Baptists uh, deny the ability of other um, of other denominations to participate or to, or they refuse to recognize their participation in those visible markers. So there's a real sense of tension with the term Catholic as well, along with oneness. And then when you get to apostolicity, uh, 
Baptists among all traditions, whether it's Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Protestant, we are the least um, Episcopal to the point where we deny any sense of any kind of overarching authority. Right? Even, even with something like Presbyterianism, where there's not a single bishop, but there's a presbytery, you still have some kind of hierarchical authority structure that has governance over local churches. Whereas for Baptists, we don't have any of that, right? So Presbyterians can still sort of, they can point to the Presbytery as, as a sign of apostolicity in some sense, even if it's not the same way that other traditions would would point to uh, the bishop in that way. But for Baptists, we don't even have that to point to, right? So <clears throat> there is some uh, significant tension when we talk about being Baptist on the one hand, and being part of the one holy Catholic apostolic church on the other hand. And so we just, you know, we want to name that tension. We want to call it out. And we want to say again, that those two things don't have to be in conflict. It, right. It there are various have, ways to right. get there, right? I mean, to yep. relieve that tension. I mean, yep. the, on the baptism question, you know, there, there have been some, you know, as you mentioned that, um, have, if not, have wanted to accept, if not the validity of infant baptism, at least the acceptability of infant baptism as a prerequisite to church membership, people like John Bunyan, and a lot of the British Baptists uh, as well. In an American context, that's not been as, as prominent, but, but, you know, some have gone that, that route. Um, And, and then on communion, you know, there's, you know, for example, in the, in the 1689 confession, uh, the second line in Baptist confession, um, there's an appendix. Uh, I don't know that may, many people have not even read. I wonder how many, I wonder how many of the people who have the tattoo <laughs> have ever read yeah. the appendix or, or the intro, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. The intro yeah. is beautiful. Yeah. You got, you got 1689 in your Twitter bio, but you clearly haven't read either the intro <laughs> or the appendix to it. Yeah. And, and I also wonder like how many know that it was actually compiled in, you know, 1677 and published in 1688. It was, it was embraced by the general assembly in 1689. Right. After the glorious revolution made that possible. But anyway, don't confront their feelings with your facts. Luke. (laughs) So, um, you know, we, we're, we're not 1689ers here. I mean, the two of us aren't and Brandon is not either. And Winston, um, we, although we revere the, the second line of confession, even though I personally wouldn't, subscribe to every article, um, I would most of it. Um, but anyway, in the appendix, uh, there, it's an interesting, interesting admission that the, uh, the ministers, uh, who signed on to, to the, to the confession, um, admitted that there was a, there was dispute among themselves as to whether or not to practice open communion. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, it wasn't, it was a debated issue among the earliest particular Baptists. And so they chose not to, not to have a, a statement on that uh, in the, in the 1689 confession. So that's it. I mean, so th- there are different ways that Baptists um, have sought to relieve the tension. Uh, some of those ways are, are more helpful than others, you know, right. uh, cause you're, you know, you're always trying to balance the two. Like we don't want to lose, if we're convinced of Baptist distinctives that they're taught in the Bible, right you don't want to compromise those um, for the sake of right. some pretend unity. Same time, you want to flex where you can in order to show, 
you know, our, right. our union and communion with other Christians. So, right. But it is, you know, you're right. It is a tension on a number of these points. And so what, what we want to do and what we try to do in, in our, um, in our explanation of this article is to <clears throat> steer that course where we are maintaining Baptist distinctives while also showing how they're not contradictory to an affirmation that the Baptist movement is part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Uh, so maybe at this point we can just walk through those distinctives and then um, show where the tension lies and doesn't lie and how, you know, how we navigate that. So uh, in the article, we mention five uh, personal conversion, a regenerate church, believers, baptism, congregational governance and religious liberty. And so in, in my class on Baptist history and theology, uh, I, I kind of narrow that down to three just for the sake of my students. Uh, and, and really I narrow it down to one. Right? So the, the distinctive of Baptist thought is personal responsibility before the Lord. That, that every, every person is individually responsible before God for their status before God, uh, that each individual church is responsible before God uh, in terms of their status as Christ's church, and that the church as a whole in local churches is responsible for the church, not the government, right? So you have these levels of authority where you say the individual is responsible. So that, that leads us to uh, the emphasis on personal conversion and believer's baptism. You say that the local church is responsible. That leads us to talking about um, local church autonomy and congregational governance. And you talk about Christ's church is responsible for itself. And that leads us to talking about religious liberty. So let's walk through each of those, talk a little bit about them. Um, is there anything you want to add, Luke, to, no, to that kind of yeah. rubric? I, a question I want to ask you, though, is what? how, do, how does that focus on individuality? Mm -hmm. the individual person, the individual church, right. Not lead to a, a kind of unhealthy individualism. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that what Baptists are trying to do in the best sense is maintain scriptures description of conversion, which is a description that's rooted in the individual repenting of their own sins and turning to Christ uh, so taking that in conjunction with the scripture's description of the life of the community of the people of God, which is clearly one that we live together. So the individual alone is ultimately responsible for their own status before God. But believers are called to live the life of belief in the context of community. And so both of those things can be affirmed at the same time. And, and, and noting the individual's responsibility before God is not the same thing as a kind of Lockean enlightenment individualism, right? This, this isn't man on an island. But it is identifying the locus of responsibility where Scripture identifies it, which is with the person, the, the individual person. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is this again, a kind of balancing. And it's something that I think a lot of Baptists and critics of Baptists, I think, don't always appreciate that, Bab that Baptists historically have tried quite hard to balance these things together, the, both mm -hmm. the individual responsibility and congregational authority. 
Right. Um, you know, so several years ago, I, I read Greg Will's uh, book with Oxford Press, Democratic Religion. I don't know if you've ever read that, but it, I haven't. It, it's, it's sort of a study of 19th century Georgia Baptists and, and their practice of church discipline. It's a fascinating historical study, but I mean, it, it, there's huge theological implications uh, from it. This idea that, that for previous you know, generations of Baptists, maybe, maybe today in an American 21st century context, it's, you know, you know, the wild, wild west, you know, anything goes, whatever people want to do. But back in the day, Baptists were very concerned with church discipline, which meant that the congregation had a kind of authority over the individual. Mm-hmm. not a coercive authority where they were going to like put them to death, you know, the way the magisterial reformers were comfortable with, with the state sort of wielding the sword against heretics. Right. Um, but so the individual believer could then go on and be free uh, in a civil society to, to believe what they want to believe. But the church also has a responsibility to preserve the unity and purity of the church. And so they would exercise discipline in the same way associations couldn't come into a church and, you know, seize its building and tell it what to do or else, you know, the way the other connectionalist uh, denominations can and do. Um, the, so that each church has its own autonomy, but the association could disfellowship a church, which sort of left it out, you know, in the, in, in the cold, so to speak, like where they were, they were, um, you know, sanctioned by, by the, the, uh, by the associational body. So there, there's, there was a, an awareness of this tension between the individual and the group that was there at the very beginning of the Baptist movement and, right. and in previous generations that we just sort of lost sight of. And sort of in an American context, especially, individuality became individualism. Right. And I think it's important to remember that when early Baptists emphasized individual conversion, personal conversion, this was entirely in line and still is entirely in line with Protestant emphasis on justification by faith alone. And specifically it's the individual's faith alone that can, that justifies them given to individuals by the triune God uh, from the father, through the work of the son, by the power of the Holy spirit. So when we talk about individual, individual responsibility, again, we're not trying to promote this kind of, every man is his own island. But we are trying to say that in scripture, it is individuals who are called to repent and believe. E- even if there are mass conversions, um, as there are in, in Acts, right? 3,000 that day were saved. Um, it's not the decision of an individual who represents the collective that repents, but it's these 3,000 people that repent and believe and are baptized. Um, so, you know, one, one other way to say it might be that there's only one um, federal head and it's Jesus and that we don't have a, a, somebody representing us in terms of our conversion, but that we ourselves are converted by, by our own faith given to us by God. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is a, this in, in Baptist life and thought, this is a thoroughgoing, and again, this is where we point to renewal movement, right? This is a thoroughgoing Protestant belief. We, we've taken the roots of Protestantism, the five sola, and, and actually worked them out to their end. What we would say about the other reformational traditions is not that they didn't reform, but that they didn't take it far enough ecclesially. 
Yeah, there's a book that I've never read. I think it was written in the 1800s called Baptist, the Only True Reformers, <laughs> <laughs> which I've always wanted to read, but I never never got around to read it. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean, people were people were spicy you know, back then. The, you know, they, would just, right? they would just say stuff. <laughs> yeah, let's go. In the sense in which that's true, right? <laughs> that we're 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 just trying to press press the Re- Reformation a bit further. Yeah, I did ask Derek Rishmawi yesterday if he would have drowned me in the 17th century, and he said no. So I feel that's magnanimous good. of him. That's that's what Catholicity is right there. <laughs> uh, so that was good. Okay, so personal conversion, uh, and then you know, personal conversion, believers' baptism. How does personal conversion relate to our emphasis on believers' baptism? What would you want to say about that? Yeah, I mean the 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 middle piece of that logic is uh, the idea that <clears throat> the church is to be made up only of believers. So regenerate church membership um, undergirds believers only baptism. Um, and that that the case that has to be made for that is not, you know, it's not just sort of pinned on one or two uh, New Testament texts mm-hmm. or on an argument from silence. Well, we don't have any infant baptisms explicitly outlined in the New Testament you know, whatever we want to do with the household baptisms of Acts, there's not, you know, any explicit mention of infants. Um, an argument from silence is not enough. It may be part of a comprehensive case, but eventually we have to get down to the business of of putting the whole Bible together, right? So it's, it's a biblical theological case, not just um, a kind of proof texting case or an argument from silence. Um, and so what we would argue and what we sort of argue in our our commentary there on the on the article is that we're led to expect from the the Old Testament itself that the New Testament would be genuinely new that that the the new covenant that's promised in Jeremiah 31 and other places would bring about uh, regeneration across the covenant community um, so that by the, so that when we come then to John the Baptist in the New Testament, and we see him saying things like, uh, "Don't don't suppose that you have Abraham as your father." I tell you that God can God is able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones. Mm-hmm. So we have a relativizing of um, family status. We have a relativizing of who your parents are and what your genes are, and that's of course pressed even further in Paul and his polemic against circumcision as as an identity marker. That what matters is not your parents, it's not your genealogy, but what matters is right relationship to Jesus. And that that's now constitutive of membership in the new covenant in the new covenant community. So that's a, I mean, we have to, we'd have to make that case biblically theologically to show that the new covenant is distinct from all of the old Testament covenants, certainly the Sinai covenant, but even, even the Abrahamic covenant, you know, there, there, although there's, there may be in some, in some ways more continuity between the new covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, than there is between the new covenant and the Sinai covenant, you know, in Galatians, right. We're all children of Abraham by faith. Mm-hmm. There still is some discontinuity as well. You know, the Abrahamic covenant didn't just include spiritual benefits between parents and children, but it was an intergenerational national mm-hmm. political order as well. So that in Genesis 14, uh, Abraham can levy war <laughs> against the Kings that are coming against Sodom right. and Gomorrah. Last time I checked, the church doesn't have that kind of uh, geopolitical authority. In the way that Abraham as a nation did, 
some right? so there's some like, people wish they did that. yeah i mean maybe the theonomists would wish that we would <laughs> uh do that but you know so there's discontinuity certainly there's some continuity as well but there's discontinuity even between the abrahamic covenant and the new covenant so you may have to make a, a broader biblical theological case that the new covenant is genuinely new and one of it's not just a renewal of the abrahamic covenant but something that's genuinely new and part of that newness is a new structure in the covenant community, uh, which is to say only those who uh, are rightly related to Jesus by faith explicitly are members of the new covenant and therefore ought to be admitted into the membership of the church. So the sign of the new covenant, baptism, while it may have some analogy to the old covenant sign of circumcision, is something that's genuinely new and ought to be uh, given only to those who give a credible profession of faith. I mean, maybe no one is convinced by hearing me give that two-minute speech on it, but that's the right. kind of case that Baptists have to make. Right? Yeah, I mean, you, you, what we would say in a very simplistic way, but I think this still captures what you're saying, is that inclusion in the Old Covenant community, people of God, was by birth, physical birth. Inclusion in the New Covenant people of God is by faith or spiritual birth. Right. That's right. And those two things are not synonymous, which is why Jesus says to the Pharisees, what he says that you quoted and um, in John three, similar, similar things. So yeah, Yeah, um, he could tell Nicodemus in John three, like you have to be born of water and the spirit in order to see the kingdom of God. He's telling this to, to, you know, a God fearing Jew. Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, that's significant. You know, there's some debate as to whether or not that's a reference to baptism. Some right. Baptists have wanted to deny that. Other Baptists have actually been comfortable seeing the water and spirit there as a reference to to the to, to baptism. Right. But and regardless, so, even, yeah, yeah, even yeah. even John's baptism before that, uh, you know, these kind of ritual cleansings were previously given to Gentiles, and John's out by the Jordan saying that even the Jews need to be um, submitted to this baptism of repentance. So something new is going on, right? Even even in John's ministry and the early going of Jesus' ministry. Yeah. Um, I, I think the other thing I would say, you know, at this point is that the, because the entry, the, the mechanism of entry into the covenant community changes, so does the sign of entry, right? So because it's, because in the old covenants by birth, physical birth, cir- the sign is circumcision, that changes in the new covenant to by faith, spiritual birth. And so the sign changes from circumcision to baptism. Um, and, and I think that's probably indicative as well. There's a lot going on there, including, you know, the inclusion of the Gentiles. And, and we there's probably a lot more we can say about that. But, um, you know, the point here is that the Baptist distinctive of personal responsibility before the Lord is rooted in this understanding of the relation between the covenants um, and in Scripture's testimony about how someone is converted to Christ. Mm-hmm. And those two things go hand in hand. And so if it's true that inclusion in the New Covenant community is not by birth, but by faith, and if it's true that each individual is responsible before the Lord for their own repentance of their own sins and turn to Christ as King and Lord, then that kind of emphasis on individual conversion would lead one to believe in an individual's responsibility to be baptized. Right. And if you were to, yeah. sorry to interrupt. If you were to point somebody, if someone wanted to know, where could I learn about this kind of argument, right? Yeah. Many people, I think 
probably just came across the kind of proof texting or argument from silence right about baptism where would you point them to say well, this is a, this is a good longer treatment if you want to if you want to see the biblical theological case for the baptist position yeah john uh, uh sorry not john talking about the gospel of john benjamin keach it's got a lot of old english in it but man um his his treatises on the covenants are fantastic in terms of um trying to explain what's going on and so uh gold refined mm. uh, is one of those and it's on baptism and and the, the great thing about gold refined is uh keach does both of these things he he he, he does the kind of lexical work about baptizo and he talks about different scripture passages and he talks about the household baptism uh passages but he does so in the context of talking about the covenant in general mm. uh, and how the covenants relate to one another and then there's he has another uh text on the relationship between the covenant specifically called the everlasting covenant mm. um and so you know I, I i hope i hope that one day uh keach will be read more widely especially mm. by baptists I mean, he is a he is a particular Baptist, and so you know, people who are kind of allergic to Calvinism and whatever else uh, will be like, "Wait a minute, I don't want to read that." But the truth is that he hardly ever talks about Calvinism. <laughs> He's okay. talking about this issue of baptism and about covenants and about um, sin and how to deal with it. And I mean, you know, if if you just don't want to read a Calvinist just because they're a Calvinist, um, that's kind of a goofy way to approach life, to be honest. Right. And so, we we would point to a lot of people of both both general and particular yeah, that's like right we don't we're not party men on that uh debate you know like we we have as much respect for you know grantham and monk the right. general baptists as we do for you know keach and kiffin who are particular baptists right another name in that same uh era uh that people might want to look for is is nehemiah cox and his mm -hmm. discourse on the covenants um yeah that's another 17th century covenantal case for right. uh, the Baptist position. Right. So, and, and mean, then of course, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say today, uh, people like Steve Willem, yeah. Peter Gentry are doing, I, this is an aside sort of, but um, the, the main criticism I continue to get of my book on Christ's descent to the dead is that in one, on one page, I quote Wellam and Gentry positively and they're like, I can't believe this guy affirms progressive covenantalism. And I'm like, I don't, that's not even what the book is about, dude. So anyway, <laughs> um, right. Uh, you know, whatever you think about progressive covenantalism, uh, those are the guys that today are making the kinds yeah. of, uh, arguments about the relationship between the covenants that I find helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and full disclosure, Steve Wellam was my doctoral supervisor. So I, I obviously admire him a great deal. But I think one of the best treatments of the, the Baptist case that I'm sure some of our listeners will be uh, super familiar with is he has, he has a, about a 70 or 80 page chapter in the book called Believer's Baptism that Broadman and Holman published a decade ago, I guess, um, edited by Tom Schreiner and Sean Wright, where he makes, you know, he responds to the, covenant, the Presbyterian Reformed Pado Baptist covenantal case with a Baptist covenantal case. That's one place to go. Another one is Pascal Deneau. I don't know if you ever read his book on, on uh, mm -hmm. 17th century Federalist Baptist views. It's another uh, approach, you know, that wouldn't necessarily be 
um, exactly the same, but uh, it, but it brought in broad agreement. I mean, there's more than one way to skin a cat, you know, uh, one more than one way to get it at this issue. Uh, but 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 eventually we have to get to those broader biblical theological structural right. arguments. So. Right. Yeah, it's 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 definitely a biblical theological argument and not just a, a proof texting one. That's for sure. Yeah. And of course, our Pado Baptist friends would say the same thing, um, but but argue with us about it. So uh, I'm not saying the issue is solved just by recognizing that. Uh, so we're, we're running a little long here. So let's move through these other ones uh, and then talk about some other things to end. Um, so personal conversion, believer's baptism, which which means that we emphasize a regenerate church uh, and that means that the church is made up of believers. So membership in the church, the sign of which is baptism, is necessarily for uh, believers. That doesn't mean that, you know, we, we, we won't have false conversions, um, false baptisms. We're not trying to say that, um, that, that we can't make mistakes and that people can't be self-deceived and, and all that. But we are saying that insofar as we can tell our, our role is to identify true conversions, see them baptized, and that's what membership is. And then the process of discipline, church discipline, would be the other side of that, where uh, if there are false conversions or what appear to be false conversions, those people are disciplined, and either they repent and, and turn back, uh, and their, their conversion is proven true, or they continue down that path, and they're excommunicated from a local church. So regenerate church membership is, again, this kind of um, logical next step from personal conversion, believer's baptism, regenerate church membership. Um, and then we get we get to the fourth one that we list, uh, which is congregational governance. And, and you can substitute, uh, in some ways, local church autonomy for this one. But just the idea that the church, is, the church as a body of believers governs itself. Uh, each 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 believer is given the Holy Spirit. Each believer um, is given the gifts of the Spirit. Each believer has the fruits of the Spirit, and so uh, each believer has the capacity to participate in the governance of the local church. You want to add anything to that or to the other one? We'll, we'll sit there for a second. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's pretty revolutionary. Like if you if you if you really think about it, the idea that um, every member, in a sense, is on an equal footing, you know, I mean, certainly we have officers, you know, pastors and deacons who have leadership roles, um, both over the, you know, the ministry of the word and, and the kind of physical needs of the church in terms of the diaconate. So we have officers who, who have leadership, but um, the the major decisions of the church are determined by the congregation as a whole. Um, men and women, young and old, you know, all those who are, are you know, members of the church uh, can participate in the governance of the church. Every member has a responsibility to be a minister in, in, a, in a very real way. And I think that's probably part of what makes the Baptist movement so vibrant, um, uh, you know, over these four centuries um is is an emphasis on well the priesthood of all believers in a sense where again this is another one of those areas where we're saying the baptists are trying to take the the protestant principle 
in this case, the priesthood of all believers and really work that out, you know, where we, we each have our own unique ministry, our own unique role to play, even in the, the, the decisions of the church. Now, again, that's balanced with just like with, with, you know, the first balancing act between the individual and the church, the, the local church's autonomy. I, I, I sort of don't like that word a ton. Um, it's a word that, you know, has been used. I'm not sure what is better. I mean, independency is still sort of bad, you know, uh, may, maybe better is responsibility that, you know, yeah. local church responsibility. That's yeah. what we're saying is that each, each local church has responsibility over, over its own affairs to, to uphold sound doctrine and the purity of the church. Um, but that's balanced with associational bonds, which were there at the very beginning, um, right. of the Baptist movement. The idea that we have associations and general assemblies, conventions, where we partner together for various um, mi missionary endeavors and, and, and otherwise. Um, and so there's a responsibility, again, at the associational level, not to tell a local church what they must do or else, but, but in some cases to disfellowship a church, but, but in a positive way to support the ministry of the church, you know, to, yeah. um, to support missionaries and, and to, to provide for theological education and the kinds of things that, that the associational connections right. give to the local church that it wouldn't have on its own. You know, most, most of our Southern Baptist churches don't have, you know, expertise in New Testament, Old Testament, Greek, Hebrew, church history, philosophy, and so on. And so we have our seminaries that we partner together with, you know, to support seminaries so that those associational bonds, those can, you know, conventional bonds can support the ministry of the local church so it's not just negative in terms of disfellowshipping but it's also positive in, in, in terms of supporting and sustaining the ministry of the local church so yeah it's a it's a balancing of of autonomy or or independence or or responsibility with these broader associational bonds and this is again why you know the charge of kind of modern enlightenment individualism doesn't stick at least in theory I'm not saying it doesn't turn into that in practice, but in theory, this is not the Baptist movement, right? The Baptist movement emphasizes personal responsibility before the Lord carried out in community where we're each caring for one another and um, holding each other accountable. And the same thing is true at the level of the church. That requires the, the individual to actually care what the congregation says in response to whatever actions or beliefs they're having, right? Um, and it requires a local church to care what their association says. And I mean, um, the spirit of the age in many ways has been for the last century, at least, probably more like two and a half, it has been individualism in a bad sense, right? But that's, it's not baked into the cake, in other words. Mm. Um, and then the final one that we mentioned is, is uh, religious liberty. Um, the Baptist faith and message puts it uh, as the ideal situation as a free church and a free state. Um, and so, again, this is the idea that um, local churches and the church at large can't, cannot be coerced or governed by anyone other than King Jesus. Hmm. And that's the way the Old Baptist Confessions talk about this. It's, it's, it's not so much in the sense of the way we talk about religious liberty today. I mean, there, there is that, and you get that, especially when you get into American Baptist life with Roger Williams and the rest. But um, in the early British Baptist confessions, the way that they talk about 
church and state is to emphasize the kingship of Jesus ultimately over the church. Hmm. It's not the monarch. Right. And so the, you know, the emphasis on religious liberty is an emphasis on where our true loyalties and responsibilities lie Hmm. rather than on um, a kind of, rather than reducing it to an argument about rights. Hmm. Uh, it, it's it's an it's a statement of responsibility, right? So uh, that's again it, those things follow on each other, right? Personal responsibility before the Lord, that believers' baptism follows on that. Regenerate church membership follows on those two. Uh, local church autonomy, or uh, you know how, however you want to phrase that, follows on those. And then uh, emphasis on religious liberty falls on that. So let's let's end with a couple of things. Um, First of all, why do we talk about being Baptist so much? <laughs> we, we've gotten that question before. Uh, we, as we started the episode, right, we get it from kind of we get it from the angle of if you really want to pursue Catholicity, you should de-emphasize being Baptist. It, right. But we also get questions from our fellow Baptists saying, "Why do you why do you talk so much about Baptist stuff? Shouldn't we be talking about how what we have in common with everybody else?" Right. Um, so we kind of get this from, from both sides. Um, I think on the first one, you know, just to kind of, uh, get to where we were when we started, when we articulate the, the distinctives in the way we have, those are not denials of the oneness of the church. Uh, the emphasis on regenerate church membership is actually a, a means to pursue the holiness of the church. Um, in terms of Catholicity, there are ways in which we can acknowledge visible unity that are not dependent only on baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we could even articulate views of baptism and the Lord's Supper that could recognize visible unity in some ways, even while we maintain our own convictions about our beliefs. Um, and then in terms of apostolicity, apostolicity is ultimately rooted for any, any tradition. Apostolicity is ultimately rooted in the apostolic deposit, the word of God, which, of course, Baptists emphasize and have in common uh, with other traditions. So um, there's, there's we probably need to have another episode um, dedicated to exploring visible Catholicity in relation to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, but things like confessing the same creeds, uh, the things like... Um, praying for other churches in our area, including non-Baptist churches. I mean, there are other ways to pursue visible Catholicity that are not dependent on baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we could even articulate stuff about those that would help us. What would you say about uh, the second question? Why do we talk about being Baptist so much? Yeah, I mean... To fellow Baptists. Yeah, I mean, especially because we, in some ways, people might think that we're sort of prime candidates to de-emphasize being Baptist because we've, you know, we, we've highlighted so much the need for theological retrieval, you know, on the Trinity, on Christology, on things like the descent, you know. Um, so what, what's all this business about being a Baptist? You know, I mean, I think, I don't know if we mentioned in the previous episode, but John Henry Newman famously said that to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. And, um, you know, there's a lot of Protestants who might not agree with that, but they, they might at least think that about the Baptists, you know, that 
to be deep in history is at least to cease to be Baptist. And uh, we want to say no, actually. Um, and we, you know, we didn't talk about baptism in the early centuries, but that would be another interesting podcast to have right. about what, what, what was the earliest practice of, of the, the, the first three or four centuries uh, with regard to infant baptism and the mode of baptism and so on. But anyway, I'll, I'll table that for now. But anyway, one of the reasons why I think it's why me personally, maybe this is just a tick of my personality of why I am interested in Baptist history and Baptist theology and of, and of framing my, uh, my own faith in terms of the Baptist tradition is because I think that these denominations matter, right? These traditions, these distinct traditions are um, entryways into the church and they provide us with anchors, roots, whatever metaphor you want to use into something that's older than just our church. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I go to a church that is, is only about four years old, three and a half years old. Um, but we're a part of a Baptist association uh, and, and the South Carolina Baptist Convention and, and the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, which ties us off to a history of Baptists in America, which then goes back to Baptists in, in Britain in the 17th century, who came out of the Church of England you know, which has roots all the way back into the patristic era. So that ultimately these, even though these, we could view them in one way as like schisms or splits and, and maybe there's some validity to those kinds of charges. And another way, these are renewals within these institutions that are older than us. And so to emphasize our Baptist distinctives is in a way, I think we ought to do that precisely in order to emphasize our connection to the little C Catholic church. Right? It's, it's an entryway in. It's a sort of taproot into the soil of the Christian tradition. Whereas if we were, and I'm, again, I'm not trying to be overly critical here, but if of, of non-denominational churches, right? But if you're a part of a non-denominational church, um, it's not to say that you can't pursue Catholicity. I know, I know many who do, right? But it's, it's a bit harder, right? It's another hurdle you have to overcome if you're saying, you know, we're a completely independent church without any association or conventional connections at all um you know that's just another hurdle in order to say uh, anything about catholicity whereas being a part of a tradition uh and being a part of um, these associational bonds uh gives us a connection to the broader body of christ so i emphasize being a baptist not in order to be sectarian but in order to be catholic Mm. that's good it's a good way to end it Uh, i'll end this with the grace today and if you know it, you can say it with us either out loud or in your mind. And now by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with us all evermore.